2: A year ago, Donald Trump celebrated Independence Day at Mount Rushmore. While fireworks lit the sky above South Dakota's Black Hills, he had a dark warning. America faced a campaign to wipe out our history and indoctrinate our children, he said. Early drafts of Trump history are not flattering. A survey of historians published by C-SPAN this month rated him the fourth worst president of all time. According to the ranking, Franklin Roosevelt and Dwight Eisenhower would be the top contenders for a spot on Mount Rushmore were it ever extended. That's unlikely, though. In 1980, the Supreme Court ruled that the Sioux Nation had never been justly compensated for the land they lost around the monument. Estimates of what they're owed reached $2 billion. Colossal disputes like this are chiseled into every chapter of American history. So what should Americans teach their children about their country? This is checks and balance. I'm John Prado, the Economist's US editor. Each week we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, how is partisanship changing history? Twenty-six Republican-led states have legislated to ban the teaching of critical race theory in school. Local school board meetings have been subject to angry protests about how race and gender, in particular, are discussed in class. What's the politics behind these disputes? And how should American history be taught? With me to make sense of the past 400 years of American history and the current political row over teaching that history are Tamara jilks Bohr, our public policy correspondent based in Washington, D.C., and John Fasman, the U.S. digital editor in New York. John, how's it going with you? You're just back from a trip to the West Coast.
0: I am. I was out in California and Mexico reporting all last week. Um, I am now in Maine, uh, my happy place, a place where... No one smiles at strangers, and everyone opens doors for you. And Tamara, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing well. Um, My husband and I spent our first 4th of July as residents of D.C. last weekend. So we spent the weekend biking around, getting to know neighborhoods, eating a lot, and getting to know our nation's capital.
2: Oh, that sounds great. And John, I gather that your reporting trip down the west coast of the United States, you were testing a theory that Tamara supplied you with about the fundamental difference between east and west.
0: It is. And before I say this, let me just reassure listeners that I know this is crude stereotyping and there are plenty of perfectly nice West coasters and perfectly polite people on the East Coast. I was out there with my my family as well. My children had never been to the West Coast before. I found, we all found Tamara's distinction extremely useful, which is that in general, West coasters are polite, but not all that nice. And East coasters are nice, but not all that polite and what that, I think I should turn it over to Tamara. The tire changing analogy really worked perfectly.
1: So essentially, it goes like this. If you're on the West Coast and you have a flat tire, a West Coaster will say, wow, I feel so sorry for you, that seems like such a terrible situation, and then walk away. Whereas somebody from New York, let's say, or Boston might pull up to your car, Ask you what are you doing? Are you an idiot? You don't know how to drive, but the whole time they'll be fixing your tire for you. So I think that really encompasses for me the difference between growing up in New Jersey and living in New York City versus my time out on the West Coast during uh, for about seven years.
0: To answer the inevitable reader complaints, I'll just say yes, it should be clear. Tamara and I are both products of the Northeast.
1: Yes, yeah, so we are extremely biased. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs>
2: Well, there's not much politeness on display at the moment in a row that seems to be going on across the nation on both coasts and everywhere in the middle. Tamara, you've written our lead story on history in schools this week. Republican politicians in states across the country are legislating to try to ban the teaching of critical race theory. But let's begin by talking about the local school board that's had the most national attention recently. Tell us what's been happening in Loudoun County, Virginia.
1: Sure. Loudoun County is a county about 40 miles outside of D.C., and it has become the focal point of these critical race theory debates. Loudoun County is a wealthy area in comparison to the rest of the US. So according to the census, the median household income in Loudoun County is $142,000 per year in 2019 compared to America's median household income of 69,000. The area has seen some major changes in the last few years. It has become more racially diverse, In 2008, it flipped blue for Barack Obama, and in 2019, the school board flipped Democratic. So now in 2021, the school district has found itself dealing with protests and raucous school board meetings from parents protesting what they perceive as critical race theory in schools.
0: You're teaching children to hate others because of their skin color, and you're forcing them to lie about other kids' gender.
3: I am disgusted
0: by well, your bigotry and your depravity. It's time to replace the When I heard that teachers and students were having critical race theory shoved down their throats and the young white kids were being told that there was something wrong with them because of the color of their skin, I became very concerned. And I don't mind telling
3: the truth as it is. Critical race theory is anti-white and it's not American.
1: It got really rowdy. There was booing and chanting and singing. The police made arrests. In the end, the board had to abandon the meeting. But this isn't going away.
2: For any listeners who want to get deeper into critical race theory, we did an episode a couple of weeks ago on the topic. So if you scroll back through our timeline, you'll find that Tamara, could you just give us a quick sketch of what critical race theorists think and how their approach to history and and to law differs from, from other people's?
1: Critical race theory, or CRT, is a legal perspective that developed in the 1970s and 80s. It emphasizes the role of racism in the systems, organizations, and institutions within American society, and the role that this institutional racism plays in replicating inequality. For example, critical race theorists would point to the impact that the policy of redlining still plays in the wealth gap between Black and white families today. In the 1930s, home loans were denied to people in certain districts, often predominantly Black neighborhoods, which is now known as the practice of redlining. According to the Brookings Institution, without the ability to build wealth over decades because of this institutionalized policy, among others... Black Americans have 10 times less wealth than white Americans today. And these theorists argue that without addressing this institutional racism that is baked deeply into the fabric of our country's history, we will see very little racial progress in America. But conservatives are using the phrase CRT more broadly to encompass a wide range of topics, from discussions of institutional racism, to diversity trainings, to policies on transgender students. They are basically using the term to describe any liberal policy in schools that they do not like.
0: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, that critical race theory for conservatives has become this sort of amorphous, amoeba-like boogeyman to describe any discussion that makes them uncomfortable. And what is so extraordinary about that, Tamara wrote about this in her fantastic piece this week, I'd like to just highlight one sort of distortive aspect of the conservative approach, which is that Texas has a law that bans teaching the 1619 Project, but it also restricts teaching, as Tamara wrote, restricts teaching that slavery and racism are anything other than deviations from betrayals of or failures to live up to the authentic founding principles of the United States. What's so extraordinary to me is that belief that slavery and racism are failures to live up to America's founding principles. That's what inspired the civil rights movement, right? Dr. King's most famous quote perhaps was Be true to what you said on paper live up to your founding principles and so it's a question of how this is taught it seems to me that what conservatives want is a story of american history that is comforting I saw today a story about parents confronting Tennessee's education commissioner. Um, and among the things they complained about was a book called Ruby Bridges Goes to School, which Ruby Bridges herself wrote. Bridges was one of the first African-American students to integrate New Orleans's school system. And the complaint was that the mention of a large crowd of angry white people who didn't want black children in white school was too harsh, and that the book didn't offer redemption at its end. Well, the whole point of the ructions we're going through now, and in fact, you know, for centuries, is that when it comes to redemption in America's struggle with race, that is something that we have to write ourselves. Learning about this history is uncomfortable, but it's true, and we're not going to get anywhere if we seek false comfort.
2: Don't you think there's something else going on here as well, Tamara, which is that a lot of parents, like the people we heard there at the Loudoun County school board uh, meeting, protest, or whatever you want to call it, have got it into their heads that their children are being instructed in a particular version of anti-racism in America, which has become more prevalent on the left over the past five, ten years or so, which is inspired by people like Robin DiAngelo, Imprimix Kendi, and which quite quickly slips over into a sort of white guilt, white fragility, and that these parents are worried that their white children are being told that they're sort of born sinful, and, and they don't like that at all.
1: Yes, parents are definitely expressing concerns about how their children are being treated in the classroom and whether or not they are being indoctrinated with these types of, of lessons. Here are a few examples of what I found. In North Carolina, children were allegedly required to apologize to others for their white racial privilege. And in Las Vegas, a family is suing a charter school for requiring people to declare their racial, sexual, and religious identities for scrutiny. And there are many other examples of these types of incidents throughout the US. So parents are either experiencing this or actually hearing about this, and they are concerned that their children are being indoctrinated or being mistreated in the classroom. Everybody agrees that we do not want children to face anguish in the classroom. But something we also need to consider is that history can be uncomfortable. And it gets really tricky when we are trying to determine what type of anguish is acceptable. Is it okay to feel badly about something that happened in the past to a certain group in your country? Or is that actually too much, that anguish? And we should then sugarcoat history. And that's where I think people disagree. And that's where a lot of these battles are occurring over.
2: Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head. I mean, if you look at the Tennessee bill, which was signed by the governor in May, which you wrote about this week, it bans public schools from teaching concepts that promote, quote, discomfort, guilt, anguish, or another form of psychological distress. If you look at the Texas law, that one prohibits training, quote, that presents any form of race or sex stereotyping or blame on the basis of race or sex. So there's clearly a view there that this is something that's being taught in American schools if not in the history classes, then maybe in civics, or maybe there's just some slightly inchoate sense that teachers, by and large, lean left politically and have sort of absorbed this leftish worldview. And parents in lots of conservative states are worried about how it will rub off on their children.
1: Right, and we actually do not know how much critical race theory is actually being taught in schools. So I know personally, when I taught about seven years ago now... I taught for five years, and I certainly was not teaching critical race theory in schools. I did not actually learn about critical race theory until after I taught when I went to graduate school for my PhD. So personally, I did not encounter critical race theory in the classroom. However, it is not to say that it's not happening in other places. It isn't clear how much critical race theory is actually being taught in classrooms, but according to the Heritage Foundation, a conservative think tank, 43% of teachers are familiar with the concept of critical race theory, and 30% of that group view it favorably, so about 1 in 10 overall. But in that same survey, 41% of teachers said that critical race theory should be a focus in an ideal civics education curriculum. So we can see that while only 1 in 10 view it positively, a good number, 41%, seem to think it should be part of the curriculum. Also, conservatives point to the fact that America's largest labor union, which represents millions of teachers, the National Education Association recently issued a statement in support of the theory. So there is this battle over critical race theory happening in the classrooms, but we aren't even sure how, when, and how often it's being taught in schools.
2: It feels to me that with the endorsement of the NEA, the National Education Association, the endorsement of critical race theory, that just feels like one of these things that happens when an issue goes into America's sort of partisan threshing machine. You know, conservatives are against this thing. And so the largest teachers' union, which is a pretty liberal organization, puts out a statement in favor of it. It's kind of crazy to one extent, right, that a a teachers' union should put out a statement in support of a particular branch of you know, legal thinking that originated in the 70s and 80s in Ivy League schools. I mean, it's nuts, right?
1: It is interesting. And I actually think what might be happening is that a lot of teachers that did not know about critical race theory are suddenly learning about it and are more likely to teach it now because it's become this hotbed issue. So I think that that's interesting. And also, if you really want children to get interested in history, One way to do that is to tell them not to learn it. So I'm sure there's lots of students right now who are badly Googling CRT to find out what it is.
0: It's the Streisand effect. Yeah, it's going to be
2: great for book sales. (laughs) Okay, thanks both. We'll find out how a row over school textbooks became a foundational moment for grassroots conservatism in just a bit. But first, the usual reminder, if you don't subscribe to The Economist already, then you're missing out. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash USpod. We look at how a new mayor might revive New York. We assess the pullout from Afghanistan. You can also read Tamara on the history wars. And there's a brilliant obituary of one of the architects of the war on terror, Donald Rumsfeld. Economist.com slash US pod is the link to subscribe. It's in the notes for this episode. In 1969, a colourful cohort of Muppets revolutionised children's TV. Day, sweet In the pilot for Sesame Street, cute kids of different races leapfrog fire hydrants hold hands crossing the road and ask directions from kindly grown-ups.
3: Boys and girls, have you met? 26 letters the
2: You got to learn them before you Public education was conspicuously multicultural for the first time, an urban America portrayed as a multiracial idyll, where the bins outside the brownstones hid nothing more malign than a grumpy puppet. Sesame Street reflected a new strand of pedagogy in America. The civil rights reforms of the 1960s included federal funds to update the school curriculum. New textbooks with multiracial role models began arriving in America's classrooms in the early 1970s.
3: The language, arts, adoptions will be submitted for review to a committee appointed by the Board of Education and representative of a cross-section of the community.
2: Alice Moore didn't like the way things were headed. A preacher's wife from Kanawha County, West Virginia, she objected to the local school board approving books containing sex and swearing and celebrating countercultural heroes like the Black Panther Eldridge Cleaver, the convicted rapist. And a fuck- have to deal with for ourselves and for posterity. Mrs Moore suspected a plot by progressives to indoctrinate America. The reading list divided the conservative coal mining community around Charleston. Large crowds appeared at school board meetings in support of Alice Moore. Believe me,
3: the books that have been on the handbills, all that you've seen printed on the handbills, all of those books are coming out. We're all out for one thing, and that's to not see that... that that our children's minds are are torn down and and this stuff goes into the schools. We're together today. We're together in a peaceful way. We've always been peaceful from the very beginning. We've been protesting for Jesus Christ for 2,000 years and we'll continue to protest for Jesus Christ until he comes.
2: The board went ahead and adopted the new curriculum, amid protests from local preachers and their congregations. When the new school year began on the 3rd of September, 1974, about a fifth of kids were absent.
3: I'm here to keep my children from going to the Kanawha County schools. I have fought this since the 1st of September.
2: The boycott caused a national sensation.
3: Now, we don't expect anybody to go slipping in the back doors or under the fences. We're tired of the school buses running over us. It's time to shut it down. Shut it down. Marvin
2: Horan, a self-ordained Baptist preacher, led the boycott. Children trying to get to school had to cross picket lines. Minors walked off their shifts to join their protesting wives. Families pulled their children out of the public schools as makeshift Christian schools sprang up for the first time.
3: There's one other book I assume you'll have. Uh, Yes, sir, we'll definitely have the Bible. The Bible will be the main textbook. Uh, Each child will have to have a a Bible, King James Version of of the Bible carry with them to the class.
2: The protests turned violent. Shots were fired at school buses and schools were firebombed. They subsided when Marvin Horan was jailed for his part in the bombings. But local resentment remained. The TV coverage at the time focused on the zealous sermonising of Horan and his colleagues. Racial resentment also played a part. The Ku Klux Klan joined the protest. But in retrospect, the Kanawa textbook war is most striking as an early grassroots rebellion against a progressive elite promoting equity.
3: And it would take a little while to explain that this plan is dedicated to undermine the Christian beliefs, uh, discipline of children. It is definitely uh, devised to turn the children against any kind of authority, parents specifically, or authority in general.
2: Donald Means, a local businessman who supported the protesters, articulated it best. The big problem, Jim, is
3: twofold. It's apathy and ignorance. Not ignorance of the coal miners and the fundamentalists, as it's been depicted, but ignorance of the intellectuals, the intelligent, educated people of this valley that won't take the time or trouble to get into these books in length and find out for themselves what is actually contained there.
2: All this happened the same year Richard Nixon resigned the presidency, a calamity for Republicans in Washington. But a stubborn housewife from West Virginia showed how a dispute over a few dozen books could mobilise thousands to a conservative cause. John, you and I are both history majors and frustrated historians masquerading as journalists. Really, can you think back to how you were taught the most violent, ugly bits of American history? You know, the, the Civil War, Reconstruction, etc. I mean, does it strike you in retrospect that your teachers did a pretty good job there, balancing sort of informing you and the, and the morality of what was going on? Does it seem to you that that parts were skipped over that perhaps ought to have had more attention. How, how do you think things have changed now? I mean, you've got two boys who are at school now being taught history, albeit in a different state.
0: Well, I had a great US history education. Um, my teacher, Sue Eikenberry, still teaches at my high school. And in fact, if I had not been reporting in Maine tomorrow, I would have talked to her class, as I still do a couple of times each year. She taught us history. I mean, I can't say it any claim in that. She taught us history. We, we read... Eugene D. Genovese about the Civil War. We read W.E.B. Du Bois about Reconstruction. And that period, as you know, I did a long essay on Reconstruction last year. That period remains, you know, for me, the most interesting and important period of American history. I remain fascinated with it, and that is a credit to Sue's teaching. How my children are learning history. My children are both attending public school in New York State. They have not yet broached the Civil War. They both got extensive education in the native history of New York. I'm curious to hear Tamara's experiences, too. Growing up in the Northeast, you know, we learned what the Civil War was fought over. It was fought over slavery. There was no question about that. And we learned what happened in Reconstruction. That It was a period of immense national cowardice and a compromise that resulted in in a century of oppression. We learned that in high school. It was not sugar-coated at all.
2: How about you, Tamara, in the somewhat Republican district in New Jersey where, where you went to school?
1: Yeah, I, I think that while the Civil War was clear and that it was fought over slavery, I would say that I came away with a bit of a sugarcoated view of the harsher aspects of inequality and racism in our history. And it wasn't until college where I started to realize that I had missed out on a lot of that in my education. I had, a, had many wonderful teachers, um, but there definitely was hesitation to really get really deep into those really uncomfortable parts of our history. And I don't think that I am much different from many other people in the US. Um, so according to a poll by Axios and Generation Lab, 93% of college students overall including 73% of college Republicans say that their high school curriculum was flawed for focusing insufficiently on the impact of racism on U.S. history. So like I said, I think that my sugarcoated view of history from my high school education uh, is similar to what a lot of American students experience in this country.
0: One of the things I think your piece, Tamara, does so well is it makes clear that this fight is not new, that there have been rows over how history is taught in America and how history is presented in textbooks for for decades now.
1: Yes, exactly. These battles over critical race theory can seem really baffling and concerning, particularly in the current context of the pandemic and the election recounts and Trump politics. But when you take a step back, these critical race theory battles are part of a century-long fight between conservatives and liberals over whose story gets told, and how, within American history. So ever since school became compulsory in every state in the U.S. in 1918, there have been battles over history education. In the 1920s, David Muzzy, a historian, was considered a traitor for his popular textbook, which, according to critics, undermined the American spirit with pro-British distortions of the American Revolution and the War of 1812 but overall attempts to ban it were unsuccessful. These battles continued on for almost every 10 to 20 years. So in the 1930s, Harold Rugg, an education professor, was accused of Sovietizing our children because he had a textbook that focused on American social ills and, according to critics, propagated Marxism. Liberals are also part of these battles as well. Um, in the 1980s, Edie Hirsch, a literary critic and professor, published a list of common knowledge for American children that became um, a bestseller. And liberal critics accused him of focusing on the perspectives of white men and on Western European perspectives. And most recently in the 1990s, voluntary national history standards came under fire. These standards were originally developed under George H.W. Bush's administration, and they were continued under the Clinton administration, But these standards became the center of a conservative firestorm. Lynn Cheney, the wife of former Vice President Dick Cheney, who was running for president during this time, she declared her opposition in an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. The op-ed was titled The End of History, just to really underline how dramatically and how strongly she felt about these standards. And she was particularly upset about the representation of certain well-known figures in US history. For example, Ulysses S. Grant had only one mention in the standards according to Cheney, and Robert E. Lee had none, which upset her when you compared it to Harriet Tubman having six mentions. Eventually, the Senate passed a resolution to condemn the standards, and the curriculum was essentially over before it even started.
0: I mean, that does raise an interesting question, right? Given that America's education system is mostly locally controlled, what role does the federal government have? Although I suppose that is really not what was being fought over in this case. What was being fought over in this case is how we remember the worst aspects of our past and how we tie together a national identity, which we still need to do based on that. And it just seems to me that the story of America's progress If it is to be told as that, what is it progressing from? You have to be honest about that aspect as well as about progress. And that entails a certain amount of discomfort at the past. I think one of the
2: conservative concerns here is exactly that, though, that there should be a single American story that everyone is told. Whereas I think, at least Tamara, correct me if I'm wrong here, liberals seem to be more comfortable with lots of different versions of American history being taught and more open to a more negative, less flattering version of America, or at least a version of America that where progress isn't forever winning out, which is odd. I mean, it feels like you have an odd inversion here where con- conservatives want the progressive version of history, i.e. the one in which progress is made, and progressives prefer the much more kind of negative one in which For each step forward, there seems to be half a step back. We'll be back in a moment to hear from a historian who got caught up in the curriculum wars in just a moment.
1: When you drive a vehicle so reliable, it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty. You stop thinking about what you can't do
2: One of the historians involved in that attempt to set out a national framework for history teaching in the 1990s was Gary Nash of UCLA. He became a target of Lynn Cheney's, and I've been speaking to him about who decides what history gets taught.
3: In France or England or China or Russia or Brazil, the curriculum is usually set at the center of government. The United States is something of an outlier where the decisions made on curriculum and which textbooks to use has devolved down to the state level where frameworks are set, which are not mandatory usually, but suggested, and then on down to the district level, and then even farther down where the teacher shuts the door and turns to the 25 or 30 students and says, it's time to teach history.
2: That decentralized approach seems pretty sensible to me. I mean, given that Americans can't agree uh, about the past or, or the present, given the nature of the political divide in, in the country. It seems to me it'd be impossible to have a kind of French style all children must learn this version of events. It, it it seems like it's a sort of safety valve to some extent to allow history teaching and civics teaching to be so decentralized. Or do you think it would be better off if if America took a more kind of French approach to this?
3: Well, uh, uh, this is democracy at the grassroots level to decide the curricula um, and give teachers more free reign to be innovative and experimental. That's the good side of it. Uh, On the negative side of it, it's something that can cut both ways. They were teaching in Alabama into the 1980s, fourth graders who learned their state history. All learned from a book called No Alabama. And in that book, into the 1980s, they learned about what a good thing the Ku Klux Klan was chasing these carpetbagger northerners out of the state and running things their own way, the southern way. So it can cut both ways. And you can see it emerging now in state legislatures who have waded into this, and that is unusual, that did not happen in the 1990s, to write speech codes, which are very vague and very dangerous and opposed by teachers of all political persuasion.
2: So the patterns that you're seeing here are old, but the speech code element of it is new. Legislators haven't got quite so far as to say anything that is divisive or that teaches slavery is anything but an aberration and a deviation from the founding principles of the nation sort of can't be taught in
3: in schools that stuff is new that is pretty new i think most teachers feel that they hope the police won't come or the parents won't get in their face about this but they know that you're not going to have a very interesting productive useful history class if you exclude anything which would make any child uncomfortable or that would lead to any division of opinion. In a liberal democracy, we want division of opinion uh, for young people to grow up learning to express themselves, argue about it, think hard about it. Patriotism is not just saluting the flag. It's, becoming responsible citizens who will take an active role in what's going on around them.
2: Tamara, one of the other things that Gary Nash said to me is that American history textbooks have become a bit more uniform on some questions. So famously, if you go back even as recently as 15, 20 years ago, some uh, school districts in the South use textbooks that refer to the Civil War as the War of Northern Aggression. And that, it seems, no longer happens. Everyone calls it the Civil War, which is good. So I wonder if one of the things that's going on here, paradoxically, is that history teaching in America is becoming a bit more national, a bit more homogenous. And so, whereas in the old days, school districts around the country taught these wildly different versions of American history you're getting something closer to a national story now. And it's a story, it seems, that quite a lot of people don't like.
1: I definitely think it's possible that we're seeing a more baseline level of history in textbooks, for example. But with the internet and with other sources of information, teachers can add a lot of things and can really make the curriculum their own. So I think that there's a concern beyond just the textbooks, right? It's about what teachers are saying in the classroom as well as what materials they're pulling, like the 1619 Project, for example. But I do think that we are still at a point where, as recently as a decade ago, states were in a completely different place. So for example, in 2010, the Texas curriculum downplayed the role of slavery as the cause of the Civil War, focusing instead on states' rights and sectionalism. And in 2015, a McGraw-Hill textbook for Texas peoples described African slaves as workers in a section about American immigration. So this was eventually revised. McGraw-Hill updated the digital textbook shortly after the controversy to reflect the forced migration and slavery. And in 2018, Texas updated their standards to reflect slavery as the main cause of the Civil War. But this is part of a larger pattern in Texas, and. Even the conservative think tank, the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, gave Texas a D grade for their history curriculum, calling it a politicized distortion of history, offering misrepresentations at every turn. So I definitely think that we could see a more baseline type of history across the board, but we're seeing in the example of Texas, an extremely large state, we're seeing a completely different version of history than what many of us would deem acceptable.
2: John, do you think politically speaking, and I guess we're talking here about politically as in for the health of American politics and democracy as opposed to for the benefits of one party or the other, do you think it's desirable to have an identical version of national history taught everywhere? I mean, would it be better if America took a more French approach to this? Or do you think the approach Gary Nash described of making decisions about what's in the curriculum
0: hyper-local is the better way to go that's a great question john it's also a very big one and let me just sort of think my way through it here obviously a country must have a national identity right that is in one sense tautological right meaning that it, it will some sort of identity and sense of belonging will inevitably emerge how much should the federal government try to shape this identity is an interesting question But I also wonder whether even that question overstates the federal government's role in crafting a national identity or overstates education's role in crafting a national identity. I mean, how many people, when they think about being American, think back to what they learned in 10th grade history, right? It's a much more inchoate, broader sense of stories and influences that shape who we are. In that sense, I think it's probably better to have decisions about history made locally in the sense that that is probably what will engage students the most i think that a national identity in a country as big and as and as federal as america is would tend toward blandness anyway so I think on balance, I would favor hyper control. Now, inevitably, that may involve some disagreements over what history is, which is fine. There are always disagreements over what history is, and teaching students to think critically about those disagreements is perhaps the point of a historical education, much more than crafting a national identity would be. That may also risk certain distortions being taught, like calling the Civil War the War of Northern Aggression, which is just untrue those will get washed out in time. And I think it's better to allow for the process of that getting washed out in time than it would be to mandate a single national curriculum. I think that's true.
2: And I guess what that process looks like is the kind of school board meetings that we heard about earlier. L- listening to those reports from Loudoun County it did remind me a bit of Tea Party rallies that I went to when I first showed up as a reporter in Washington and in, in Virginia in, in 2013. Tamara, do you think this issue has the potential sort of politically to electrify um, Republican activists and get a sort of big grassroots movement going that Republican politicians can then, you know, take advantage of electorally?
1: Absolutely. I think that if you really want to upset people, tell them you're indoctrinating their children with something that you disagree with. But I am hopeful that despite how crazy everything has gotten and how worrisome those meetings sound, I do hope that we're moving toward progress. One of the silver linings of this reporting for me was seeing how we've evolved over time as a country where, you know, what seemed controversial at one moment is no longer controversial. And I'm hopeful that in one or two generations, critical race theory will seem as radical as learning about the pro-British leanings of Tories during the colonial times. And in 40 years or so, we'll look back on this and think, how could we have never talked about institutional racism in our classroom?
2: Well, that feels like a very good place to end this podcast, but we can't end there, Tamara, unfortunately, because it's quiz time. The Economist published its first report on American education in July, 1846. Excellent education, free of charge, was a cornerstone of American democracy, we wrote, a testament to the country's faith in the virtue and intelligence of every voter. The fact that so many of New York's children attended school led The Economist to conclude that America would continue to progress in civilization and importance. The divide between North and South was a concern, though. In Carolina, one in six adults were illiterate, compared to one in 650 in Connecticut. The slave state's deplorable ignorance was on a par with the darkest kingdoms in Europe, we wrote. In which European country did the concept of universal education originate? France.
1: I was going to say France too. I (laughs) should have gone first.
2: Uh, I'm going to give you null point because it was Prussia or Germany. Prussians devised the model of compulsory school attendance, teacher training and pupil testing. They also instigated mandatory kindergarten. So America's got some catching up to do there. America's first garden of children was founded in 1856 in Watertown, Wisconsin, by Marguerite Meyer-Schultz, a political exile from Hamburg. Lessons were in German, as they were in most of the early American kindergartens. The school shut down on the outbreak of World War I as German culture faced erasure. Hamburg Street in Chicago became Shakespeare Street. Restaurants even changed their menus. What were hamburgers
0: called... During World War One?
1: Freedom burgers.
0: I that's a great question. I'm embarrassed that I don't know this. That's a fantastic question. Uh, I don't know, meat patties.
2: Tamara is closer. They were liberty ah! steak or liberty sandwich.
1: <laughs> that's great.
2: <laughs> Sauerkraut was renamed Liberty Cabbage, which sounds much more delicious. And German measles even became Liberty
1: Measles. <laughs> <laughs> that is fantastic.
0: I'm surprised they changed the sickness. I mean, surely for propaganda purposes, like those delicious foods are American, but that thing making you feel terrible, that's 100% German.
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) I love the idea of being liberated by your measles as well. That's a great bit of (laughs) rebranding.
2: Well, that's all for this week. Thank you, Tamara. Thank you, John. Thanks, John. Thank you. Thanks also to Nico Rofast and John Shields for producing... If you like the podcast, please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. You can get in touch with us via email. The address is radio at In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week.